Hey, listen, it is, it's Holy Week, and, uh, and Monty mentioned it, Micah mentioned it. Easter's a big deal around here because Jesus is alive, Amen. right? And so, um, hey, if you don't have plans already for Easter, uh, please, man, we would love to have you come and celebrate that truth with us. And so um, my hope, though, is that regardless of what next weekend looks like for you, is that this week you just take steps closer to Jesus. I mean, that's what we're doing. We're chasing hard after him, but invite you to join us as we do that together next week as well. But hey, listen, I am glad you're here. We're wrapping up this series called The Book of Acts to the Ends of the Earth, and we're going to be Acts chapter 27. So if you've got your Bible, you version, go ahead and jump there with me. But um, listen, we've been in this series for three months now. We've just been, been looking at the story of the early church, but the reality is it's not just the story of the early church. It's, it's the continuation of God's story, of God's grand epic story, the story of redemption. And, and it's our story too, right? And, and we're going to see just how we play into that. And, and we're going to wrap up our time together, like looking at our story and how we fit into it. But when we kind of step back and, and we look at this and we see that, the man, this beautiful story of God is all about his pursuit of his children, right? And so we look and we, we go back to the Old Testament and we see throughout history that God is actually moving closer to his children as he pursues us. And we see this in the Old Testament that, that God would show up in various forms, physical forms, so they could see the presence of God. And the Israelites, when they're wandering in the desert, God would literally show up as like a pillar of fire at night and a cloud in the daytime. And if they were ever like wondering, is God with us? They could just point and be like, he's right there. Like there's God, we, like he's leading and we are following him and he's guiding us. And, and so they could see the presence of God. And, and then God moves even closer through Jesus. The incarnation, when he's put on human skin and he stepped into the story, into humanity, and, and, and he lived among us. And you could listen to him teach. You could listen to him laugh. You could see the wrinkles on his face. He's fully man. He's fully God. You could see him hurt for, for people he cared about. You could see him stoop down and, and show compassion and empathy in a way that, that only God could. And so you could, you could actually be where he was. And so Jesus, in the, in, in the flesh, he, he's showing us God's pursuit is ever moving closer. And, and then, then God moved even closer through the Holy Spirit that desires to live in you and move through you to change the world around you so it will never be the same. And we see this. This kind of starts like this is the outpour, the very beginning of Acts. And so if you go back to January, but, but more so you go back to uh, like man, almost 2,000 years ago when the church was birthed, we see this at Pentecost where, where Jesus' followers, they're called to spread the hope, the message of Jesus. And he says, hey, you're going to be my witnesses. Jesus is about to leave. He's about to ascend back to heaven. He said, I'm going to leave you, but you have a helper coming and you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and you're going to go out, but you're going to start right here. And we see this in Acts 1.8, that when he comes on you, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right here where we're at. 
and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so that's been the springboard for our entire study through the book of Acts, the very beginning that, that God's pursuit has led the Holy Spirit closer than ever to live in us, move through us, to change the world around us. And when the Holy Spirit came, and Luke describes it like he's coming on like a storm, like, like it's these gale force winds, and it's like th this grace and this mercy and this love and this hope is ambushing people, like starting in Jerusalem, it's going to move out and it's going to wreck cities with the hope of Jesus. It's just going to ripple out from there and, and all the way up to and through now we're part of this Jesus movement, this initial wave of hope from Acts chapter 1. And through our Acts journey, we've watched as what started as a handful of Clarence Rack type followers exponentially multiplied into thousands and thousands. And we've seen the Holy Spirit move mightily through men and women and guys like Peter and John and Stephen, the first martyr, and Philip and Barnabas and Silas. And we've studied as the, the early church, it, it continued in the face of persecution. It, it continued to explode in numbers and influence. In fact, it seemed that persecution, which was always intended to stop the church, it, it only acted more as gasoline and petroleum and fueled it at every turn. And then the story continued with Paul, with Paul, that this, this notorious Christian hater turned Jesus billboard and, and Saul turned Paul, and we've watched him carry the name of Jesus on multiple missionary journeys to city after city, and he planted church after church, and we've read accounts of him facing down all kinds of storms in his life. Like being whipped and beaten and stoned and robbed and starved and cold. And he's, he's been thrown in prison repeatedly and he's been warned not to speak the name of Jesus. But he can't stop and he won't stop. Which brings us to the end of Acts where we now find ourselves in the midst of another storm. Acts 27, but this is not a figurative storm. No, 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 it's a very, very real storm. You see, on his final recorded missionary journey, Paul is yet again a prisoner on a ship. This time he's en route to the great city of Rome with dreams of boldly preaching the gospel to what he considered the ends of the earth. And so he's going as far and fast as ever before, and he's carrying the message of hope, this gospel message. He's carrying the good news, the name of Jesus to Rome. And so we're going to zoom in and kind of unpack this voyage. See, at this point, the boat that Paul is on has been swept up in a hurricane, and it's been forced out to sea where they just do their best to try to survive day after day, and they've been out here now for about a month, and the captain and the crew, and they're desperate, and they get to this point where they've thrown the ship's tackle, and they're starting to throw cargo overboard. They're throwing everything that could, that could weigh it down, and they're at this point where the storm is getting so bad that all they can do is let down anchor, and it kind of drags them a little bit to try to keep them afloat, and then once that one completely runs out, then they cut it, and they throw another one, and they do this, and they're trying to just survive, and they're out there, and these dark thunderous clouds is all that they can see or hear and and they're just just moving alone trying to survive they can't distinguish now the day from the night 
It's just all darkness. And, and the only light is the flashes of lightning and, and they don't really know the difference between the salt from the water or from their tears. They're just scared for their life. They don't know exactly where they are, but they're quite certain that their lives are coming to an end. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 27, verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. They gave up all hope. Because they've been out there day after day and, and everyone on this ship, they're, they're desperate and they're in despair and the forecast is bleak and it's dark and they gave up hope. You ever been there? You ever been at a place so dark where you just, you feel like you, you, the thing I held on to, I don't even have anymore and you just give up all hope. That's where they were. But then verse 21, after the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice, which ladies, that may be your new favorite Bible verse there. Men, you should have taken my advice not to sell from Crete then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. You, you see, there, there's this moment where Paul, in verse 10, he warns them. Now, now Paul wasn't a, 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 he wasn't a fisherman, that, but he traveled a lot where he was well-versed in the sea, in the storms, this kind of thing, in this time of year where they should be winterizing the ships, not going out to sea, but they, they, they gambled and they lost. And so he stands up finally, and he's kind of like, I told you so. Verse 22, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. And so that's his message. Paul stands up and he says, he says, hey, listen, listen, I warned you that this is going to happen. We're in this storm. I warned you this is going to happen. But God's got big plans for me in life. He says, God, God is going to see me to Rome. And listen, you guys are safe by proxy. <laughs> you guys are going to make it because I'm on ship. I'm on board. And so, so he says, hey, this is kind of this, this good news, right? And, and Paul had warned this Roman centurion, the, the one who was ultimately in charge. And he had told him back in verse 10, but he didn't listen to the preacher. He listened to the pilot, right? Which I can't blame him. But how often do we find ourselves leaning into our own intuition and leading into counsel that's not of the Holy Spirit? Because God was with Paul and Paul was trying to share that with them, but, but they, they choose to go out and now they find themselves in the eye of this storm and Paul is standing on this battered, beaded ship and, and it's almost breaking what they literally did. You can read this. They tied ropes all the way under the ship and they're just trying to hold the wood together. They're starting to take on water. This is not looking good. And then, and then we get to this point where it says, but keep up your courage. 
because I got to get where God is leading me. You see, Paul didn't allow the storm to sway his faith. In fact, Paul saw God at work in the midst of the storm. How? Because Paul's focus was fixed on Jesus. Paul's focus was fixed on Jesus. He didn't put his faith in the boat. He put his focus on Jesus. You see, you can't always fix your your situation, but you can always fix your focus. But our tendency, and you get this, our tendency though, is that whenever we're faced with storms in our own lives, is to call out to God to stop the storm. And sometimes he does. But other times, he wants our focus in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the chaos, when all else around us is failing. God says, don't put your faith in the boat. Fix your focus on Jesus. We start questioning and we start doubting, but, but know this, that you already have all you need to do all God wants to through you. God is with you. And verse 37 goes on to tell us that there were 275 other people besides Paul on the boat. A few hundred people on this boat and some were part of the crew. Some of them were soldiers, a lot of them prisoners like Paul. And then some of them probably just punched their ticket on the wrong day. And they find themselves out here. And while they may not have had a lot in common, they certainly have one thing in common, that everyone was terrified. Everyone was scared for their lives and had given up hope. Everyone but Paul. See, Paul's hope was never placed in the boat. And I heard one pastor say his hope was placed in the one who made the wood that made the boat. Like his focus was on something higher and stronger and more powerful than what he was going through. And you know, this is a similar situation that Peter and the disciples have found themselves in when Jesus called Peter out of the boat. But we have to get this, that unlike Peter, Paul has no such call. Rather, he's to remain in the boat. We have to see the difference here. The the, the church, as a Christian, God doesn't always shield you from the storm. He doesn't always call you to jump ship or to step out and rise above the tide. Instead, he often allows you to go through the storm so that you can demonstrate the hope you have in Jesus as a fellow traveler. You see, for Peter, Jesus called him out of the boat to come be with him on the water. But for Paul, the Holy Spirit was already with him in the boat. And that's exactly where Paul needed to stay. He didn't need to jump ship to preserve his own life. God had provisions for that. Brother Paul needed to be present with those who were scared, those who were panicked, those who were petrified and terrified and frantic. Why? Because Paul wasn't. Paul was filled with peace through the storm. Paul had this supernatural peace because the Holy Spirit was in him, moving through him to change the world around him. Paul's focus was fixed on Jesus, which gave him hope through the storm. And so the question becomes, is your focus fixed on Jesus? Are you embracing the unique platform God has given you? You you know, I heard one pastor, J.D. Greer, say, the testimony of a fellow traveler is the most powerful testimony of all. 
I love that someone who's there, someone who's been there and done that, or they are there and they're going through that because it's in your reality of weakness. Get this. It's in your reality of weakness, not your glimpse of strength that provides the best platform for sharing hope. It shows people that you're not immune to trouble. You've just found the remedy and the remedy has a name. His name is Jesus. That yes, we will face obstacles. We will face storms. We will face opposition. We will face diagnoses and depression and anguish and agony and heartache and hurt, but we still have hope. You know, I heard Jenny Allen say in a recent sermon that even if the worst thing comes for us, we are okay because of the hope of heaven. That when we fix our focus on Jesus and trust that the Holy Spirit is with us through the storm, it gives us something to look forward to. Heaven. Ultimate peace through Jesus. And by sharing the hope that you have with others in the boat is the best way to join God in the story he's writing. You see, a fellow traveler has a unique and compelling platform because they are there and they understand. And so it's in your brokenness, in your weakness, in your pain, when God's glory is most clearly put on display, trusting that even if the worst possible thing happens, God will be there when the boat breaks and the ship sinks. Saying, I'm not focused on my current predicament. I'm focused on God's future promises. You know, when my kids were younger, um, we, we just had two of them at the time. Beckett cuteness wasn't even on the map yet, but Kylie and Grayson, they're maybe five and three at this point. And we were going to Kroger one day, and this is what they like to do, put toilet seats on their head and ride around. And so we're doing this, and I asked them a question. I have no idea what I, why I would ask this, but I said, hey, do you guys need anything? And... Grayson, he thought for a moment and he looked at me and he said, "Um, I need new wipes. Mine are too scratchy. (laughs) And without missing a beat, my daughter, who's two years older, she said, it's okay, Grace. Sometimes coupon wipes are scratchy. (laughs) And he just took, he was like, oh, okay. And that was it. And we moved right on. But, but, But here's the thing. She understood She had been there, she had experienced that, and she shared her unique testimony as a fellow traveler to her little brother, and he understood. He understood, and and listen, we get that, and I know that that's that's fun, but but listen, the testimony of a fellow traveler is the most powerful testimony of all, because you have experiences and understanding that you can only have through being there with them. And so the question again, are you embracing the platform that God has given you? Not when it comes to pampers or coupon wipes, but but when it comes to sharing your experience. Is your focus fixed on Jesus even when your circumstance suggests his silence? You you see, we pick back up in the story, um, verse 43, in the centurion, the one in charge now, he, he, he gets to this point and the boat is literally breaking and they've checked the depth and they're like, this is as far as we can go before this whole thing crashes. And so they get to this point and some of the soldiers are like, should we now kill all the prisoners so they don't escape? And it's like, we've made it this far. 
No. And so he decides, hey, I, I have to get Paul to Rome. That is my job. That is my duty. And so the centurion, he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. Like this is the ultimate put your oxygen mask on before you help others moment. Like things are going crazy. The storm is here. And the centurion says, if you can swim, now's your time. Get off and start pedaling, paddling for your life. And so they do. And then verse 44, the rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. In what way? In this way. Not the way they had planned, but the way that God had provided. And that's the story of Paul's life, isn't it? That, that trial after trial after trial and tribulation after tribulation, but the gospel, triumphant, unstoppable, unhindered, unbridled. You see, see, while Paul may arrive on the doorsteps of Rome completely poured out and disheveled, the gospel he carries is alive and flourishing. There's no storm too big for God. And while he may not always silence the storm, he may not always call you out of it, he's always with you through it. He certainly was for Paul. But his journey goes on and he does eventually reach Rome, the final chapter of Acts. And, and we jump to the very end of Luke's account. And Luke has been so enamored and he's written all these details. We're so grateful for it. And, and he's, he's talked to all these eyewitnesses and he's gathered all of this. And so he's, he's getting to the, the, the final act of his account. And, and we get to this point and Paul now, he's on house arrest. He's literally chained to like a guard and, and he's trying to, to make the best of it. He's writing letters at this point. Um, some of the, 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 the books that show up in our New Testament, he's writing these letters to churches. He's encouraging people. And, and then verse 30 says, we're right here at the end. Verse 30 says, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness unhindered. You know, some translations say without hindrance, that he's, he was unrestrained. Even though he's in bondage, he's, he's unrestrained because of the hope that he's proclaiming, that he was unbridled in that. And then the end, sort of. You, you see, the, the book of Acts, the documentary of the church, it's still being written. In fact, we are the living pages of the book of Acts. And so Luke completes the sentence, but he leaves a cliffhanger. He leaves us wondering, well, what happened next? <laughs> like he's giving us play by play. Like we know that ropes were under the ship. We know they're dragging anchors. We have all these details. We get to this point and it just kind of ends. And, and, and what happened when Paul finally stood before Caesar? Why wouldn't Luke record that? I, I mean, the rest of the New Testament. It's jam-packed with letters from Paul to churches or letters from Paul to uh, other ministry partners or, it's, or there's general letters from key disciples. And then we get to Revelation. And so, yes, we see that in the end times, Jesus wins. But what about the meantime? Like we go from Acts 28, like he's preaching unhindered, period. And then we, we show back up and Jesus comes back and, and he 
wince, but, but we're in this gap. Why would Luke leave his audience, his readers, why would he leave us in suspense like that? Why? I think because we're not just the audience. I think we're characters too. Like what began as a window has since become a mirror. You see, it's not about Paul's dreams and aspirations. It was never about him or, or Peter or John or any of the other apostles. You see, it wasn't even about the individual church plants or the letters that Paul wrote to those churches that, that we've now bound neat and nicely into these leather-bound books. Like, like it wasn't about any of that. It, it, was, it was never about anything other than the name that is above every name. You see, the story is all about the gospel. It's all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. It's about the Holy Spirit living in and moving through and changing the world by way of followers of Jesus. Now, many theologians believe that both Peter and Paul go on to eventually be executed by Nero, but the story continued. A man in the ground, but the message moved forward. And it has ever since. And will continue because it's not just the story of the early church, like I mentioned at the beginning. It's our story too. Luke's account is open-ended because God's story is ongoing. And we are part of its spread. But where do we fit in? Like where does Northeast Christian Church take up its place in God's story, in the story of the church? Well, over the past couple of weeks, I've, I've talked with people who've been a part of, of this church for a very, very long time, before this church even existed, and, and we've done research, and we looked at um, articles of incorporation. I've talked with, with many of you, and we've done a, a lot of research. And I, I want to share with you some of the story of this church. And what I want to do is, 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 is for you to buckle up as we trace from the vine to our small branch right Okay, so we start, like I said, we start first and foremost with Jesus. It is all and only and forever about Jesus. And so Jesus, he dies the death that we deserve on the cross, right? He took on our sin and our shame and our pain. And he paid the price for us. So Jesus to the cross. And then Jesus was taken from the cross and he was laid in a borrowed tomb. Who borrows a tomb? He was gonna leave it nice and tidy three days later as he walked out through the power, the Holy Spirit, and the resurrection. That Jesus overcame sin and death once and for all. And he walked out of that borrowed tomb alive. And then he spent time with, with, with dozens and then hundreds of his followers, encouraging them right there in Jerusalem. And, and, and then we get to the outpour. Jesus has, has ascended back to heaven. We get to the outpour of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. When hundreds became thousands in one day. And just think that those ripples from those baptisms, they served like as an illustration for the way that God was about to move them out. That you're gonna leave this city and you're gonna carry the hope. You're gonna carry this message to the ends of the earth. Because very soon persecution ignited by the death of Stephen, Christianity's first martyr, it drove the gospel carried by these followers out of the holy city and into Judea and Samaria on its way to the ends of the earth. And then as we stack chapters on chapters through Acts, the apostle Paul's missionary journeys 
lead to church plants, from Galatia to Philippi, from Ephesus to Corinth and beyond. Yes, up to and through this point that we just read at the conclusion of Acts in about 60 AD with the gospel having spread all the way to Rome. Paul shows up and there's Jesus followers in Rome with no signs of slowing down. And as decades turned to centuries, the gospel continued to spread. Moving across Europe, as well as North Africa and the Middle East, primarily by word of mouth from neighbor to neighbor, taking advantage of the Roman Empire's political unification and extensive road system. And the fact that everyone, everywhere, regardless of race, sex, ethnicity, social status, or age, was welcomed into the Jesus movement for God so loved the world. But the Romans' widespread great persecution around 300 AD was just one example of attempts at gospel suffocation as it killed waves of Jesus' followers until 312 AD when the Roman Emperor Constantine submitted his life to Jesus as Lord and Savior and established Christianity as the official religion of the empire. Well, this led to newfound flow and consistent spread of the gospel as the empire's influence expanded further and further across the known world. And then by the seventh century, the gospel had reached most of Western Europe. And while emperors, kings, and missionaries played instrumental roles in gospel expansion, it continued to primarily advance through relational discipleship and testimony of life change as the Holy Spirit worked in and through followers of Jesus. But this was not all without blemish. No, there were dark, regrettable, horrific times in history where Christianity spread as a result of bloody crusades and conquests. But over the next 400 or so years, faithful and true followers of Jesus wouldn't forsake meeting together for worship, caring for the needs of the body, breaking bread, sharing communion, and proclaiming the resurrection as God faithfully continued redeeming, continued rescuing, and continued saving all who would call on the name of the Lord. And then starting in the late 1400s, advancements in technology led to the age of discovery where European explorers spread the gospel across the Atlantic Ocean to the Americas, during which arose the Reformation movement with key influencers like Martin Luther and William Tyndall, leading to the separation from the Roman Catholic Church and ultimately led Protestant colonists determined to uphold biblical doctrine across the pond. Well, the synergy around the Reformation movement eventually gave way to what history calls the Great Awakening. During the 1730s and 40s, when the spread of the gospel would see a surge and expansion across the American colonies, colonies that were filled with settlers seeking political and religious freedom. But after the Revolutionary War, the church began to dwindle as indifference set in across the frontier of America. But then, In 1801, a huge revival drawing estimates of more than 20,000 people broke out in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, at the Cane Ridge Revival, about 30 miles east of where we're gathered right now. And at that revival was a young preacher by the name of Barton W. Stone, who in partnership with an Irish immigrant named Alexander Campbell, will become instrumental in propelling what we now know as the Restoration Movement. Now jump forward 15 years to 1816 when Barton W. Stone, along with 24 others whose hearts broke for the people of the bluegrass, was moved to plant the first Christian church in Lexington, Kentucky. By 1841, a much larger church would go on to be built on Main Street and growth continued. That church eventually moved to Short Street 
And then Broadway Christian Church was formed in 1870. And as the gospel continued to expand across the city, Christian churches were planted on Chestnut Street, Maxwell Street, South Side, West End, and one on Maryland Avenue in 1927. Well, three decades later, Maryland Avenue Christian Church had outgrown its space, relocated, and changed its name to Northern Heights Christian Church in 1957. And then after continued faithful growth, Northern Heights acquired the property of Eastside Christian Church on Eastland at the turn of this century, and that merger would lead to further expansion, as they would both eventually break ground on a plot of land in the development of an old horse farm. A farm that John E. Madden bought with the proceeds from the sale of his prized two-year-old thoroughbred named Hamburg. You see, Madden and his family would go on to breed world-class thoroughbred champions at Hemberg Place Farm like Old Rosebud, Flying Ebony, Alasheba, Starshoot, and Pink Pigeon, and the first ever Triple Crown winner, Sir Martin. But the government's plan in the 1960s to run I-75 right through the middle of this 2,000-acre horse farm eventually led its, to its business and residential development in the 80s and 90s, a development that included one plot of land be set aside for a church. A church that would go on to sit at the intersection of what would become Starshoot and Pink Pigeon Parkway in the heart of Hamburg, 40509. And that church would undergo another name change in 2001 with a nod to Northern Heights and Eastside Christian to become what you now know as Northeast Christian Church. And in that same year, They would officially move to that new location and continue sharing and spreading the gospel there. And by there, I mean here. And after two additional building constructions over the next five years, friends and families began gathering in the very room we're in today in the summer of 2007, where God keeps writing the next chapter of his story, of our story, where we keep proclaiming the good news of the resurrection that there is hope for everyone, where needs are met, hurts are healed, and people are cared for, where people come and see, yes, but they meet and follow Jesus into what's next. You see, church, there, there is no plan B. The Holy Spirit living in and moving through followers of Jesus is the plan. And this plan will not fail. It will not stall. And it cannot be stopped if we fix our focus on Jesus. No matter the obstacle, no matter the storm, we've seen this for some 2,000 years now, and we're a part of it. That Northeast is a flagship community of Jesus followers who continue to faithfully gather in Hamburg and scatter beyond with good news, a church committed to the Great Commission, a church that exists to love God, connect people, and make disciples so that other people, all kinds of people, people made in the image of God will be ambushed by His grace and those who are far from Him will be reconnected soon. That's our story. It's the church's story. It's God's story. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the gospel is unhindered. It's unrestrained. It's unbridled. And we've been invited to continue writing it together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you deserve all glory and praise and worship. 
Father, we are so grateful for your church and for writing us into your story of redemption. Father, we remember and we appreciate and we recognize and, and we celebrate all the believers who've gone before us, starting in Acts and moving through century after century till now. But God, we know that it's not about them. It's not about us. It's, it's about the gospel and sharing the good news of Jesus with as many people as we possibly can. And so God, may we live with a sacred sense of urgency to allow your Holy Spirit to move unhindered through our lives and in our world. God, I can only imagine who would experience inexplicable hope if we all took up our place in your story, boldly pressing on with our hearts on Jesus and our eyes on our city. God, thank you for being a father who loves us, for your son who died for us and the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Father, we continue humbly joining you in writing your story. Father, we join you on mission and we commit as a church to fix our focus on Jesus as we extend hope to this generation. And all this we pray in Jesus' name.